welcome to the podcast. Welcome to everything you need to know about music. Where tonight I, Jason, am going to be doing an overanalyzation of a great song, a phenomenal one, one of my top 10 favorites. This is Gimme Shelter by the Rolling Stones. We are going to pick it apart, go through it inch by inch, line by line, talk about why it was written all of the special nuances to it, talk a little bit about some of the music theory that goes into this song, and why for some reason, even to this day, it is such a haunting melody that just gets stuck in your brain, and when you hear it, it sounds as fresh, I think, as the day that it must have come out. So let's talk a little bit about what it is and what it means. The song ranks number 13 on the Rolling Stones magazine list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. By the way, since we're doing the Rolling Stones, we're talking about the Rolling Stones list. For the longest time, I didn't know if one was named after the other, the magazine after the band or the band after the magazine, but it's actually neither. It was named after both take their name from a blues song, Rolling Stone by Muddy Waters, which was released in 1950. And real quick, can I just play that really for you? This is that song. So bluesy, so good. Well, I wish I was a cat swimming in a deep blue sea. I would have all you good looking women fishing. And later in the song, he says, He's gonna be a rolling stone. Anyway, so that's where both of them get their name from. This Muddy Water song, 1950. All right, so let's talk about this song. This song was recorded in London at Olympic Studios February and March of 1969. However, the vocals were then later recorded in Los Angeles studio, Sunset Sound Recorders, and Electra Studios in October and November, respectively, of that same year. So early in the year, February, March, and then later in the year, October and November, it was finished. Nicky Hopkins played piano. Jimmy Miller played percussion. Charlie Watts played drums. Bill Wyman on the bass. Jagger did the harmonica. And Keith Richards did all the guitar parts. And we're going to talk a lot about those guitar parts once we get through the song a little bit. It is... The opening track of their 1969 album, Let It Bleed. My friend Kevin loves a good lead-off tune, and I'm going to pick his brain next time I see him to, to ask him if he thinks this might be the ultimate lead-off tune for any album ever. Because Let It Bleed is such a good Rolling Stone album, it was the actual 8th British and 10th American studio album for the Rolling Stones. And it's the follow-up to Beggar Banquist which had such a great song on it, which was Sympathy for the Devil, one of my absolute favorite songs as well. So this was the follow-up to that. You know, we want to try and uh, accentuate the album art whenever we can from some of these older recordings, and this one is a really special one. If you ever get a chance to take a look at it, it's odd in a way. The album cover uh, has what looks to be like a cake, and then in front of that cake... And there's like little figurines on top of that cake. I'm looking at it right now. And then in front of that cake, there's a, a record that's being played with this old phonograph uh, kind of record player looking arm. And originally Jagger asked the artist MC Escher to design uh, a cover for the album, but he declined. So this guy, Robert 
Brown John designed the cover, and he made this surreal sculpture, which consists of this phonograph, and it's like a stacked bit of a plate, and then some records, and then a film canister, and then there's a clock, and then a pizza, and then a bicycle tire, and then on top of it, a cake, and on top of that cake, there's icing, and on icing, (laughs) there's these figures that represent each one of the members of the band. Very, very odd. If you get a chance to look at it, please do, because it's, it's very interesting as far as an album cover. It's one of those that you could glance at and go, huh, whatever, but when you really look at the details, it's very odd. The song itself covers a lot of what was going on in the time of 1969, and it covers war, uh, they talk about murder, rape, fear, um, and we, before we get into you know, some of the actual lyrics, let's talk a bit about what was actually going on in the previous year, which was 1968. Let me just highlight some of the things that took place that led to this enormous amount of tension, frustration, and intensity that was going on in the world. We had the assassination, of course, of Senator Robert Kennedy. We had, obviously, Vietnam. There was this um, student protest at the Polish political crisis. We had demonstrations against Vietnam War in London, in Grosvenor Square, uh, where 90-something people were injured. Uh, We had Paris student riots, Black Panthers, a shootout with uh, police in Oakland. Martin Luther King was shot dead. Columbia University students shut down the university. Andy Warhol was shot by a feminist. Uh, Anti-war protesters clashed with the uh, police in Chicago. Uh, We had the Tet Offensive. We had the hijacking of Pan Am flight from JFK to Cuba. And on and on and on. 1968 was a power-packed, enormously tense political and social unrest year. So, all of those things need to be said to understand where the sounds and and, and lyrics come from for this song, which is, give me shelter. What he's really saying is, give me shelter from all that's been going on over the past year. The lyrics really suggest that both Mick and Keith were thinking about getting shelter from this storm of all of this unrest that was going on. Now, interestingly, the Rolling Stones did not release this song as a single, so it actually never charted. Now, the backup singer who we're going to talk about, her name is Mary Clayton, the the female vocal that occupies about two-thirds of the last part of this song, which is an an, an amazing, amazing vocal performance, and we're going to really dig into it specifically, so we'll get there. But her name is Mary Clayton, and she actually did a version herself after the Rolling Stones version came out. Hers came out in 1970. That did get released as a single, and it made it to number 73 on the charts. So the Rolling Stones actually never charted with this. Uh, It was written by both Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. Uh, They wrote most of the Rolling Stones uh, songs together. They were the songwriting team, very similar to John and Paul for the Beatles. So Keith Richards began working on the song and that signature opening riff, which we'll get to in a minute, uh, while he was in London. Now, Mick Jagger was away filming a, uh, a movie that he was doing with Keith Richards' girlfriend, Anita Pallenberg. Now, uh, in Life magazine, Keith Richards revealed that the tension 
uh, that he was feeling during that time and the jealousy that was he kind of saw Mick and his then girlfriend in these steamy love scenes, he, it really did not sit well with him. So a lot of those tensions kind of caused uh, him to write some of these lyrics as well. Um, let's talk about some of the instruments that were used and then some of the voices. So Richards is credited, Keith Richards, of course, is credited with both the rhythm guitars and lead guitars. Um, he used this Australian-made Matin SE777 large body, large single cutaway hollow body guitar, which he had previously used on Midnight Rambler, which is a great song. But the guitar barely survived the recording. And in fact, at the very end of the recording, you can really hear the last note of Gimme Shelter. It literally, the guitar falls apart. So the whole neck falls off. And in 2002, he quoted, you can hear it on the take that the whole neck broke right off. He then said in the same interview on writing the song, Keith Richards quote, it was just a terrible effing day. This incredible storm came over London and I just got into that mode, looking at all these people running like hell. And, oh, what a storm threatening my very life today sounded so good. So if I don't get some shelter, oh, yeah, I'm going to fade away. And so let's get into this beginning intro, this riff that he has. It's so I'm going to use the word haunting because for me, it's, it's truly what it is. It, it sets the tone for this dark, mysterious, incredible melody that just goes through the song throughout, but yet, and yet it, it holds on this and it keeps building and building. It's, so, it's just so good. So let's get into it. Here's the way that the track opens. I'm going to play it and then we're going to pause it because I want to go through it a little bit with you. Here comes the bass. All right, let's, let's, let's break that down a little bit. First, we got to talk about Keith Richards' guitar style and then some of the things that he does that makes him so special. So one of the things that Keith Richards does is he plays in these open chord tunings. And even if you're not a guitar player or you're even a novice guitar player, let me explain what that is so you understand. A, a standard guitar is tuned from lowest string to highest string, E, A, D, G, B, E. If you were to strum that open, that doesn't make a chord. It doesn't make an actual sound other than those open strings. So you need three notes to make a chord. But when you play an open guitar in standard tuning, that E-A-D-G-B-E setup, that doesn't make a chord. So what Keith Richards would do on many songs is he would tune the guitar in a special way so that it would be when you play the open strings, it plays a chord. So on this one, he uses what's called open E tuning. Now that means the E, the low E, stays the same. The A goes up to a B. The D goes up to an E, the G goes up to a G sharp, everything else stays the same. So by tuning those three strings, the A, the D, and the G, up a bit, when you strum the open guitar, now it is playing an E chord. If you were to take your fingers then and go across any one of the frets, let's say the first fret, 
or the third or the fifth or the seventh, any one of them, you're then playing a chord. So if you were on the fifth fret playing just all of those notes on the fifth fret, you'd now be playing an A chord. So to go one step further, normally if you were on that fifth fret to play an A chord, you would need to add your other three fingers down while barring that fifth fret. But if you did it with his tuning and you played what would normally be a traditional A chord using your other three fingers also with that bar, instead of playing the A chord, now with the new tuning, you're playing the four chord of that song. Now for blues players, you know, the one, four, five, and we've talked about that a lot on this podcast is so important to rock and roll music. So now what Keith Richards has really done is he has said with every bar that he now plays with his finger, regardless of what fret he plays at, he's playing a chord. And if he plays what would normally be the traditional power chord, he's playing the four chord of whatever, or whatever first chord that he was playing. So essentially what he's doing when he's playing that riff is he's going from a standard bar chord using just his finger across the neck and then adding what would be the power chord on top of it. So now listen to it again and you'll hear exactly that bit of that melody, the bar chord to the, 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 to the four chord, on off, on off. That is the melody that he's playing. That's the on off, on off. And then there's a second guitar on top of it playing that little riff and the ooze in the background. And then when we get through this a couple of times, that little note, that little high note right there is the seventh of that four chord that he adds. One of the most fun things, by the way, to play on the guitar, if you ever want to tune your guitar the way Keith Richards does, this is not a hard thing to play, but it's just so special. So we're on the ninth fret on the C sharp. We go to the seventh fret, B. Then we go to the fifth fret, which is A. Those are the chords of the song. But the way that he plays it, and with the right guitar and the right tone and the right tuning, it makes it sound so eerie. And you just can't do that any other way. You can play it in standard tuning, but it doesn't sound the same. It just doesn't have that same eeriness. It doesn't have that same setup. And that's what makes it so special. It can't be done truly any other way. I think also this is a contender for the greatest intro ever of any song. It just has this incredible, I'm going to use it again, haunting melody that just stays throughout the song and creates this dark, rainy day type of thing that just conveys what they're saying. Now, lyrically, it is not the most complex song. And in fact, if you were to break it down, which we're going to do now, there are three verses, there are three choruses, And then when Mary Clayton, that female voice comes in and she has a little bit of a kind of an improv, we're going to call that either a B section or we'll call it a second chorus where she kind of improvs a little bit and takes things a bit further in the chorus. But listen to how simple these lyrics are. Verse one says, oh, a storm is threatening my very life today. If I don't get some shelter, oh yeah, I'm going to fade away. That's it. That's the whole first verse. 
Yet when Mick Jagger does it, it sounds so important, serious. It sounds like he's, he's, he's gritty, meaning it. It's intense. And then the chorus says, war, children, it's just a shot away. It's just a shot away. And then it's repeated, war, children, it's just a shot away. It's just a shot away. That's it. Then we get into verse two. Ooh, see the fire sweeping our streets today. Burns like a red coal carpet. Mad bull lost its way. That's it. That's the second verse. Then the chorus repeats again. Then there's this, I don't want to call it a middle eight because it's not. I don't want to call it a pre-chorus because it's not. I want to call it a second chorus or even a B section. Then she comes in, rape, murder, it's just a shot away. It's just a shot away. She repeats that three times. So let's play these parts because I want you to hear the way that he does it. Because when I say it, it does no justice compared to when Keith does it. So let's take it from verse one. come with the chorus and Mary Clayton listen to her scream now originally I'm gonna let this play a little bit originally they didn't know if they were gonna even have a female voice on this so the producer one of the producers on the record said you know what let's get a female voice on this let's try it we may not keep it but let's just try it so they decided to go with Mary Clayton So let's talk about Mary Clayton. Mary Clayton made her name by doing duets primarily with people like Burt Baccarat. She did some stuff with Elvis Presley. Um, Also Ray Charles. She also sang, and if you listen to it closely, you can absolutely hear her tone and intonation. She sings on Leonard Skinner's Sweet Home Alabama. And if you hear that chorus and you hear her yelling, you know that it's her. She was 20 years old at the time, and in Los Angeles, when they were doing the vocals, her friend was this guy, Jack Nietzsche. And Jack said, you know what? Let's get a female vocal on this. Let's just try it. We may not even keep it, but let's see. So he calls her up. This was midnight. She had curlers in her hair. She was asleep. She gets this call and she says, she's like, I'm not going to do it. Her husband, however, who was a jazz saxophonist, this guy named Curtis Amy, talked her into it and said, just go down, just see it. It's the Rolling Stones. Give it a shot. They may not, you know, it may may not work out, but, but go anyway. So she said, quote, I'm wearing this beautiful pink pajamas. My hair was up in rollers, but I did take my Chanel scarf, wrapped it around the rollers, and it looked kind of cute. Went to the bathroom, put on a little blush because there's no way I'm going to the studio looking other than beautiful. And so she goes in there, gets ready to work. She was raspy because she was half asleep. And she says, wait a second, what are the words? And she says, quote, I'm like, rape, murder. Are you sure you want me to sing this, honey? And she laughed at at, at Keith saying, are you you sure? So she did. Now I'm going to play the record with her and Keith singing it together. And then I'm going to isolate her vocal so that you can see just what she's doing. But listen to this. I had about 240 in the song. Listen. Listen. 
Incredible. Now, there's this legend that you can hear her voice just cracking in that, and you can hear just the, 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 the passion that she has. During the second refrain, you can hear her actually crack so much that her voice, Mick Jagger, screamed, woo! Like, it's just, he was blown away by what she was able to do. Later, after she had gone home and settled and everything, she suffered a miscarriage. She didn't realize that she was pregnant at the time. And some sources say that it was because of her exertions during this recording that caused that. It's a bit of a legend. No one has confirmed it, but it, that's how much uh, passion was put into the creation of this song. So what I want to do is I want to isolate her vocal because it is so buried in the mix that you know that it's there and you can hear it, but you have to hear just what she did isolated on its own. Just incredible. One of the most amazing performances ever. Now, we, we had mentioned that she actually did her own version of that song. Here's her version, which charted at number 73. Check this out. Not quite the same. Let's get to her vocal a little bit so you can hear it. Soulful. Very soulful. It doesn't have what the Rolling Stones had, but I just want to give you a little bit of that from 1970. Mary Clayton, by the way, did have a regular role on the 80s TV show Cagney and Lacey, and she played the maid in the movie Made to Order. So she had a pretty interesting career. Mary's name is listed wrong on the original album release, M-A-R-Y, but her actual name is M-E-R-R-Y because she was born on Christmas Day. It appears wrong all over the album. Let's go back to the original song now. I want you to see how this ends and they wrap all of this up together with every bit of soul and passion and power and everything that they have in this intense, incredible song. One of the things I want to highlight before we go out is I want to go and at least give Mick his due, not only for his vocal performance, but also a bit of his harmonica. The harmonica is really, again, spooky and eerie and just adds to every layer and element of this song that gives it its true character. And it's right here before we get into Keith Richards' uh, solo that he has between verses two and three. Check this out. Little lead. 
This song, let's talk a little bit about some of the accolades. Rolling Stone magazine says that Gimme Shelter's release is the greatest thing that the Rolling Stones have ever done. Quote, the Stones have never done anything better. Pitchfork placed it at number 12 on the list of the 200 greatest songs of the 1960s. Ultimate Classic Rock put the song at number one on their top 100 Rolling Stones songs of all time and number three on their top 100 classic rock songs of all time. And again, it ranks number 13 on the Rolling Stone 500 Greatest Songs of All Time and number one on the magazine's list of the band's best songs. And according to acclaimed music, it is the 34th most celebrated song in all of popular music history. It's such an amazing, incredible song. And it's very simple. Lyrically, it's simple. Rhythmically, it's simple. With, with regards to the tuning of the guitars, it's a little different. But if you learn how to do that, the strumming is pretty simple. But when you put all of it together, the layers of complexity just kind of come out and make this song so eerie and special and make it an absolute masterpiece. So with that, I will say thank you so much for listening. Enjoy the song. We'll see you next time. <laughs>